Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode of the SickCast is from a live webinar titled Don, Sikhi and Giving, featuring presenters Harinder Singh, Jaslene Kaur, and Manvinder Kaur. The event originally aired on January 29, 2022. Thank you for tuning in to today's webinar hosted by the Sikh Research Institute. I am Manvinder Kaur, the webinar coordinator, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Uh, this webinar will begin with a 40-minute moderated discussion between our presenters, after which we'll have 40 minutes for Q&A from the audience. So please drop your questions in the chat box and be sure to include your name and city. Now I'd like to introduce you to today's panelists. We have Harinder Singh. Harinder Singh serves as the Senior Fellow Research and Policy at the Sikh Research Institute. He's a widely respected educator and thinker who is deeply in love with one force, the oneness that radiates in all. He co-founded the Sikh Research Institute and the Punjab Digital Library, organized the Free Agalta Movement, and envisioned Gore and Singh Academy. His current focus is on availing the message of the Guru Granth Sahib to global populations and developing critical thinking in Sikh institutions. He currently resides in the United States with his wife and two children. And we also have Jocelyn Gore. Jocelyn Gore is a researcher at the Sikh Research Institute. She has received a religious studies BA and uh, MA from the University of Virginia, focusing on South Asian religions through the lens of literature and poetry. She is one of the commentators and transcreators of the Guru Granth Sahib project. She's passionate about projects that create comfortable spaces for community members of all ages and backgrounds to engage in dialogue and learn from one another. Jocelyn Gore resides with her family in the United States. So welcome to our two panelists today. I hope you are all having a wonderful Saturday morning. Uh, just before we hop into the conversation, I know today we are gathered to be in conversation about the eighth state of the Bantha report titled Don, Sikhi and Giving. Just to give you a little bit of background information, the State of the Punt series, they report on matters affecting either a large sect of Sikh populations or a perspective on critical issues facing uh, the human race at large. So the State of the Punt report surveys uh, self-identified Sikhs on their stances in regards to critical issues and questions. The reports outline a Sikh perspective based on uh, Gurmit traditions of Bani on history, so Tavrik, and Rehet, so lifestyle. Um, and then they often go, or they always go into recommendations for the future for individual Sikhs and Sikh institutions. I share this just so um, folks tuning in understand kind of what the flow of our conversation will look like. Um, these recommendations are provided as best practice approaches to strengthening the bonds within the community. Uh, so similarly to what I've just outlined, that's how our conversation uh, will follow. We'll spend some time talking about Bani, history, Rahit, uh, what they have to say about Dan, uh, today's topic, giving. 
Um, and we'll then we'll move into what members of the Bund had to say via the survey and then some recommendations uh, and thoughts around uh, thoughts for individuals and institutions. Uh, previously in webinars, if you're interested in hearing us talk about other State of the Month reports, we've spoken about media beauty on psyche and sexuality. And today, as you all know, we'll be talking about the latest report, Don, Psyche and Giving. Um, I think, I guess in thinking about what giving is, contexts that come to mind for me as someone who lives in uh, the Canadian state, I think about giving uh, like the giving season that has just ended, perhaps shifting into the new year, reflecting on how to move into the new year with intention. Maybe we set New Year's resolutions, whatever floats your boat. Uh, so I hope we're able to maybe, I, I think I'm mostly reflecting on that intention piece and hopefully that's something we can pick up uh, through this conversation. Um, and I guess in the SIC context, I'm thinking about prominent organizations, including nonprofits such as the SIC Research Institute. Um, I'm thinking about Thus Fund, uh, maybe where we're choosing to give, we're trying to see which organizations out of um, 600 ones that we want to donate to or give to, uh, what principles or ideologies uh, they adhere to. So kind of delving into that conversation uh, that we have with ourselves for providing some uh, context through Sikhi. Um, I remember this survey coming about last year. I remember it uh, was maybe titled Sikhi and Philanthropy. And obviously over the course of the year, conversations and shifts have occurred. Uh, maybe to invite our, our panelists into the conversation today, Jocelyn, uh, yeah, I'd love to, to know why Don was chosen as the topic for this report. Sure. I think, um, as you said, we have these like cyclical sort of like seasons of giving and we, th we think about it a lot. And I think, um, in the last two years with the pandemic and, and kind of things being exposed as, you know, deeply unequal or systems being deeply unequal, people really like scrambled to give like that, that was like a big thing that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think it's kind of been sustained as new things come up because we're so, online and so kind of informed sometimes to a to a disastrous degree <laughs> but yeah so so there is this like deep urge to give whether it's like within the bunt like six giving to other six or outside of it and we're becoming more globalized and we're also understanding that like systems are unequal and that you know the wealth gap is increasing like all these things <laughs> are happening and so we're trying to figure out what to do to like at least alleviate some of the symptoms of that as individuals. But then what ends up happening is that maybe you decide you sit down to, you sit down and you're like, I'm going to give away a hundred dollars this month, but you don't know like where to even begin. You don't know how to like evaluate where to put your money, where best to put your money, whether you should spread it out, whether you should concentrate it in one place. And I think people get really paralyzed by that. And so there's like a lot of thinking about giving and then kind of like, either just like giving to the major organizations that maybe don't need our money as much um, or just not giving like that thoughtfully, which is not, that's not like a dig at people. I think that like there's a lot going on in the world. And so it's hard to sit down and know where to begin. So that's why we, we decided that this might be a good time <laughs> to delve into all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm also wondering about like the shift from philanthropy to Don. Uh, yeah, if you want to yeah, share a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So we started as we started the project conversations, mostly talking about like philanthropy and nonprofits and how we kind of, um, designate, like allocate money to different projects, whether they're long-term or short-term. And then when we started to think about that, we realized that we had to actually understand like at its, in it's like most basic, which is kind of a misnomer because it's so much more like complicated and multi-hued than I think, at least I thought going into it, we had to understand what giving is in the sick context before we could even think about anything else. And so like, if you read this report, which I highly recommend you do. Um, the Bonnie section is almost 20 pages. And there's a reason for that. It's not just because we like to like hear ourselves talk, you know, there's so much to just that one word to Don and how it relates to just foundational principles that we hold. And so the like idea of giving becomes complicated and multi-hued and much vaster than we originally thought, or maybe we think in our like day-to-day context. So before we can even understand like institutions giving, we have to understand how we, how giving sort of impacts us as individuals and how we see that, like our role in that. Um, and then also we knew from our conversations and from just like, looking into sick history, we know that philanthropy is like a very recent idea um, in the way that we think about it, especially like in the West, in our context. Um, And like these ideas of nonprofits and charities and philanthropies were not kind of part of the lived reality of like the Guru period, for example, like those words were not used in that way. And so making the report about giving allowed allowed us to broaden that topic so that we could pull on the different threads of understanding that are necessary to bring us to the present day context where we do have philanthropy and we do have nonprofits and charities and things like that. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I think it also delves right like perfectly into my next question, which is around like the personal um, and your, the both of you, uh, your relationship with this work and how you were kind of toiling or asking questions about it. I think oftentimes in the the realm or field of research, objectivity is desired and it's like, it's understood as what makes good research. Maybe I would argue it's argued as something that's even possible, which I don't know if that is entirely possible, but I'm wondering, and you already kind of touched on it, maybe her are saying, we can get started with you. Uh, I'm wondering, um, where do you locate yourself in this work? Where do you see yourself throughout this report? Um, yeah, maybe what challenges or personal questions arose as you were going through this report writing process? Sure, uh, Gurfate, everyone. Um, you know, th- th- there were many questions uh, for myself, uh, which range from, you know, how I used to give 20 years ago to how I am personally giving now. Uh, I had questions regarding, I got asked a lot about, you know, in last 20 years again more, you know, what should we fund more, whether it comes to 84 related or education related or archiving related or just aid and relief work, you know. So I, you know, I have a tough time recommending because what do you do those bases on? Uh, the, I would say number one challenge really uh, from a report perspective was that who do we really find to do external reviewers? You know, we have external reviewers on our project. So we draft it and then we send it out to at least three people. And we usually we look for five. And in this case, where are the seasoned people who understand charity and non-giving and philanthropy? Those who live and breathe that every day and not just that they are giver themselves. 
that was a big challenge. You know, we eventually found two people uh, who actually are part of the nonprofit world. Uh, Sick world might not know them. Uh, in fact, I want to recognize that, you know, Amri Kaur Shahpuri and Lovely Kaur Tillon, uh, they're the two people we found who have been, who are seasoned professionals in this and who actually help strategize this for big organizations outside of the Sikh world. So that was another challenge. You know, we all think, like we looked at the EDs of the Sikh organizations. We looked at the people who are founders of the Sikh organizations. So we may understand an element of it, but we don't understand a larger picture from a current perspective, at least. So that was one of the major challenges. And the other was essentially <laughs> the, the, what Jocelyn alluded to. That's why we changed the title. Uh, we started with Sikhian Philanthropy and then we uh, ended up making Dan because what really giving is. If we are not able to locate uh, giving in Sikh world, uh, in Guru Granth Sahib, in Bani, in Shabad, in Nam then it is an opinion. It might be a great opinion. It might be something which is popular or ideologically clear or whatever else you might want to call it. But it is not creating to create the foundations of the Sikh giving, which is what how it started in the Guru period. Because what you see in the history is an outgrowth of that. So I would say the largest challenge was, and we didn't find much on it. So we actually said, let's go figure out what the idea of giving is. And we pursued that quite a bit in this. Mm-hmm. I think it also gives insight into like, I think sometimes we see the survey and then we see the report. So you're also giving us insight into uh, maybe the intricacies and the background work that goes into creating a report and engaging with research and in hopefully like a, a mindful manner. I'm wondering, Jocelyn Gore, if there's anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, I we've talked about this before, but I'll let everyone else in on it. <laughs> Is that like even with our reviewers, um, we try to keep the perspectives pretty varied um, so that we can look at things outside of our own perspective and, and be challenged in ways that we might not be able to challenge ourselves. Um, and one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm sure people who've watched me in previous webinars can maybe suss out that I'm a little bit left leaning. <laughs> um, and so, and so there are these questions of like, how do I think, you know, things ought to be, in terms of like how we give and and what our sort of strategies are and how do I put that to the side as I'm going through writing and researching the report with her and they're saying and also um, analyzing like historical examples of how other people have done that. And so the example that I've been thinking a lot about is the is kind of the gap between like Banda Singh Bahadur's strategy with the Khalsa Raj and um, uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh's strategy. And I think that like we had talked about like, if we were to sit these two men down in a room, they simply would not agree on most of the, like the hows, most Mm -hmm. of the methods of like getting to the goals that they, you know, have, have, uh, I guess enumerated, but they would agree. I would, I would venture to say on the goals themselves and on the, um, just the importance they place on long-term things like, uh, you know, community building and, and education and like patronage of the arts. And maybe, you know, we have Banda Singh Bahadur who I fondly think of as like a Robin Hood type because there's this period of time where they, there is like that literal, like taking from the, the rich or like maybe things that we call land back in our parlance today of like returning land to the tillers. And so there is this much more kind of like people oriented, um, grassroots sort of empowerment that happens with the Khalsa Raj. And then you have Ranjit Singh, who 
is like leading an empire and that's a little bit different and and his strategies were different and so i think part of what i find really helpful every time we do a report no matter what the topic is is that like is that difference in in the how and maybe sometimes also the difference in the in the what and the why but um it's really helpful to think about that because sometimes we like to like paint history with one broad brushstroke and say like all of the six who came before us, like all agreed on everything, method, goals, everything. And it's just not true. And so if we can locate ourselves in that history and kind of have these figures sort of converse in a way when we're doing these reports, it actually pulls me back from my tendency as a human being, which I think most people experience because it's a human thing to do of like trying to simplify um, and trying to kind of be like, this is the way that it has to be. And we need to, you know, do things the way that I think we need to do them. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what a conversation between on Singh and, and Ranjit Singh would look like these days. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I feel like you've given us a lot to think about. And then I think um, at, like, as we think about these two figures in conversations, the decisions they made, the methods and the goals, I feel like we cannot, we can't not put ourselves in that conversation as well. So I think it also maybe helps us like um, understand different methods to reach similar goals. And it makes sense that we don't all agree on the me like means to the goals. Um, so I think it definitely helps provide context in that sense. Um, yeah, I guess maybe thinking a little bit about what, like delving into what Don is, um, I'm thinking about how we understand it beyond like that simple translation to giving. Um, so her and they're saying, um, yeah, how would, what, what is Don and how, how, I guess I'm thinking about what, how it's widely or generally understood uh, by present day six. So how it's understood is, you know, I think much more sort of palatable, I would say, because we are mostly used to that. Uh, the element uh, which all of us understand is, look, it's some sort of a donation. We can call it whatever we want. Sikh vocabulary has the word dan in it. But the more popular Sikh vocabulary in last 50, 70 years, even if you have purchased a poti or a gutka, you'll say it says peta, which means offering. And that's what it's called when you do matha take. It's a peta. You know, when you take gifts to the guru or to the gurdwara, it's called peta. So my point is the verbiage has shifted, but the understanding is that you are physically giving something. It's monetarily giving something. It rarely has been invoked for intellectually or from man giving something. So very popular understanding has to do with material wealth. It is either a physical, tangible thing which people can use, touch, feel, digest, eat, consume, use, or it's the money which is being used to provide some sort of a relief or aid or some sort of education, something of that nature. That's the current understanding of it. Most of the time, that's how it's invoked. But I do want to mention that at the same time, people who are studying us and sometimes not necessarily uh, being accurate about it because they are uh, sometimes picking data. For example, I'm looking at the report which was published last year about the Sikh nonprofits by a think tank in D.C., and they try to make it that all sick think tanks are actually collecting monies to somehow create ruckus, you know, and it included Secrets Institute and other organizations in America. So we have to be a little bit cognizant as to how people who are studying us and with their agenda, how they present what the Dan is, because they are making it to be 
on one hand, they say it's a great thing that six are such givers, which we saw then during farmers' uh, protest and movement. We all saw that during COVID, COVID era. But when it comes to the collection of that money, they actually use it in a very negative manner. But I think the Sikh psyche and the Sikh people are very clear. Primarily when we are using the word donation or daan or peta or offering, it really is referring to something very, very tangible, something which has more often than not uh, a more instant gratification attached to it, which means you see the result in the near term. And But in few cases, you also see people who are going into some long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that helps provide us with context. And then I'm wondering if we delve into that uh, Gurmit perspective, or yeah, the Gurmit perspective, if we delve into Bani, I'm wondering uh, what gets illuminated, what context is provided, Jasleen Kaur, um, how is this understanding different or challenged when we think about Don within the context of Bani? Um, I sort of, yeah, I sort of talked about this in the beginning very vaguely, but it's, um, it's a much vaster idea of giving than we think it is. And so it is the spirit of giving, but it requires a lot of like internal work and sort of cultivation of both like outlook and behavior that, that is not easy. And so it refers to like this kind of giving that is without scorekeeping. It's without expectation of praise. It's without, um, you know, uh, like emphasis on having people see that you're giving. It's, it's like all of these things that we know about ourselves when we give, we're like, we we're, when we maybe are on the like GoFundMe for something and we're like, should I make an anonymous donation or should I put my name on it? Like, these are real, like things that we go through, but the, the kind of heart of it is that there's a lot more internal work that has to be done before we can give in the way of the greatest giver, which is Ikongar. And that's like repeated throughout Bani is like the greatest giver is Ikongar and the greatest gift is Nam. And so part of what we do in the report, we had to explore what Nam is because if Nam is the thing that qualifies our giving, then we have to understand and like feel and experience what that is. And so again, it's like, way, we have to like way backtrack. So Nam is identification with Ikonkar, but identification is not just this like passive or dead thing. So we included the kind of oft quoted Budin Singh excerpt where, you know, he talks about, it's not this mechanical sadhana. It's this like inspirational thing that overflows it. It coats your behavior and it um, inspires other people to change their behavior. Like it's this very active thing. So it is identifying with Ikongar, the greatest giver with the greatest gift through all of your behaviors and actions and thoughts and how you perceive the world. And then it's that nam that qualifies your giving. So again, you can see why the, like, the Bonnie section is so long because these things cannot be separated. Um, dawn without nam is not dawn in a sick paradigm. Um, and it's that kind of vastness and purposeful, um, vastness of giving and purposeful giving that we're trying to emulate. Um, which is not easy. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've given us a lot. I feel like I always have to, like, as you're going through it, I'm also going through it with you. So I think, like, the, the nam qualifies the giving, I think, uh, and we'll delve into this a little bit more, but the nam and don is what I'm thinking about right now. Um, and I'm curious, um, something I picked up on the report was this differentiation between 
gestures, so like the doing. Um, so whatever that might be, um, like giving to the Gurdwara, observing fast, giving alms, whatever it might look like in different like religious contexts and in the Sikh context. So these, what I'll call like gestures, and then these, I guess, like a reflection or an internalization, maybe what we could call um, the Dhan being like coded by the Nam. Um, I'm wondering what is the significance between the relationship between these two and how does it help us better understand Dhan? Yeah, so there's multiple Shabbats that we've included in the report that where the Guru kind of plays on these gestures, as you call them. Like, And it's not to say, don't do the gesture. Like, I want to be very clear about that. It's not saying, don't do these things that make you feel like, you know, you're connecting in some way. But there's there's a lot of, and we know this in like like classically religious terms, there's a lot of gestures that we do because there's a very clear like reward for those gestures. And that's true in most kind of religious practice. Like there's something that we do because we think it's going to get us somewhere. And six do it too, right? Like if I do, you know, an akandbat, maybe I can do, maybe I can get this. Or if I do this, then maybe I can get this. Like there's these things that we do where it's this, we think there's an exchange between us and the giver that is um, very like very tangible and very based in kind of that scorekeeping. And we're like tallying off things that we've done and gestures that we've done and hoping that it gets us something, whether that's like something we want in this life or so, or some kind of comfortable abode in the next life. So all that is, is challenged when we think about Don, because um, that is our tendency is to like, think about this exchange in that way. And so like, we, I think we have to understand, and this is something that we talked about in the report, that like ultimately we're actually not the ones doing the giving. So even the things that we're giving are from the greatest giver, like they're from Ikonkar. And if we can understand that, then a lot of things go away, like the scorekeeping and the like transactional nature of our giving and the expectation of some kind of reward. And also like an attitude of lack that I think sometimes permeates things, even like the wealthiest people. I mean, that's the joke is like the wealthiest people. Sometimes they give the least and it's like, you know, everybody does that kind of tallying and calculation because we are, are kind of operating from this idea of like, I have to hoard my own things and keep my own things for my own people. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we're not able to like live out that vastness. So the reason that these gestures get mentioned is not to condemn them or tell us to not do them. It's to urge us into that understanding that even if we're doing these gestures, like what, who is really the giver and what are these gestures really for? And where is our brain when we're doing these gestures? Like, are we doing all of this with some kind of expectation? And so I think that's really like relevant to what we go through on a daily basis in our relationships and in our, in our like giving. And I also think then that, you know, we talk about this nam non ishnan paradigm. So I'll kind of introduce ishnan because it's literally a cleansing, right? So we see people doing this in various like purifying sort of bodies of water at various holy places. And it's supposed to do something for them. It's supposed to cleanse them, remove their sins. Like there's all these ideas we have about this physical mm -hmm. cleansing. So the guru also takes that gesture and says, yeah, that's, that's how you understand it. But also Ishnan is about clarity in our purpose and in our actions. And it's like, 
it's not about this physical cleansing. It's about like being able to be expansive in our perspective and in our and in our understandings so that our actions can also be vast and emulative of Ikonkar. So all of these gestures, which I think is really like a cool thing, get played on to, to kind of be reimagined and re sort of, yeah, re under, understood in a different way as being within that paradigm that we say. So we talk about so many times in this report, which is the Nam Danishnan paradigm. Um, yeah. So everything that we think is surface level is like deeper by like a hundred levels, basically, um, when we talk about these gestures and our ideas about giving and, and what comes next. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I feel like this is also helping. Yeah, perhaps we're not like consciously or actively um, going into these like hundreds of levels. So maybe this like helps illuminate and like maybe help us, helps put us in conversation um, with the multiple levels and the deep meanings that something as maybe previously thought as simple could actually be like much more complicated. Um, yeah. And I guess you've already mentioned it, the Nam Danishnan. I think that frames a lot of the Bani section. And I think it also frames a lot of the rest of the report. Um, I see it, I guess, yeah, I saw it translated as uh, identifying, giving, cleansing. And in my like, in my brain, I'm like, oh, that's very linear. You do the identifying and you do the giving and you do the cleansing. But of course, like that, that's not it. Uh, or that's not simply like the one way to look at it. So I'm wondering, Harinder Singh, um, how does, what does Dan mean in the context of Nam Dan Ishnan? Um, yeah, if you wanted to share a little bit more about that. So, you know, I'm, I'm listening to two of you go uh, have this conversation and just you know, explaining it. And uh, I'm going to pick out a couple of those things to answer that, right? So it is complicated, but remember, Gurbani is for everyday people, so it is simple as well. So we can complicate it as much as we want, but then we have to say, okay, what is it really telling us to do? So the first part there would be, look, you know, let's start with where we are. So Guru Nanak Sahib actually tells us in Barney, when we are giving, what we are really thinking is this. Again, if you are that ideal exception, you know, I'm going to say this one percenters in a different kind, not the one percenters we are used to. So one percenters of Virle KEK in Gurbani, it's something even maybe probably less than 0.1%. Who is not thinking this is less than probably 0.1%. That's the number I'm using. But what Guru Nanak Sahib is telling is, what are we really thinking when we are giving? He's like, De de mange, sahasa guna, sob kare sansar. So even if you take it at a physical level, because that's what we understand the most, right? And then we can go to metaphysical or the non-physical. Uh, he says, when you're giving, when I am giving, I'm actually expecting thousandfold in return. There is an internal generosity gene in me or the genome in me is expecting that. And now nonprofit reports are saying, it's good to give, give because it makes you feel good. But Guru Nanak Sahib is elevating to the next level. Yeah, but there is this intentionality somewhere in there that you are expecting thousandfold in return back. De de mange. While you are giving, you are expecting, you are asking for from whatever your one force is from Ikkovankar to various worship modes, which Gurbani actually references. In our worships, we do this as well. But we don't just want that uh, in return a thousandfold. We are also expecting fame and recognition. That's our condition. Nothing wrong with that condition. That is our condition. So how do you go from that condition to the Ikkovankar condition, right? And that's where the Gurbani and the Gurus come in. 
that we know where we are, giving is good, giving is good for everyone, but let's see if we can go beyond this. So that's how you become the giver, like the ultimate giver, who is a Kuankar, who is the force of the world. So Naam Danishnan in Guru Granth Sahib is oft-repeated phrase, and we have actually uh, cited multiple Shabads where this is repeated, but I'll just use one line, very simple line. It says, Gurmukh Naam Dan Ishnan. Gurmukh is the guru-oriented one, the wisdom-oriented one. How do you become wisdom-oriented? When all three come together. So it is physical, like Justine was explaining, nothing is being told, not do it. But if you limit it to that, it is incomplete, just like giving is good. But if you limit it to that intentionality that I'm going to get thousandfold in return and I'm going to get great recognition, then you're limiting your vastness. You're limiting yourself and not allowing yourself to become like the koankar, the giver, the very vast giver. So the cleansing, the ishnan part is there. Cleansing is internal and external. So of course, physically, we have to be hygienic, but mentally, we have to clean ourselves as well. Similarly, dan is that there is a physical giving and there comes a point where you're not just thinking about physical and material givings. Your very existence become, the way you live becomes the giving person. So mm -hmm. in fact, the line I'm remembering right now is, it says, Pun dan ka kare sarir. The whole body, the whole existence is that uh, uh, is virtuous, is of giving. And then the naam is, of course, there's a physical element. We talk about it. There's a practice in Gurmat traditions, naming someone. When you, when you like someone, when you love someone, you, you want to serve their name in different ways. So that's the naam. That's the name. But it goes towards identifying at the highest purposes, at highest level, where everything you do is in the identification of the divine. So in that naam, dan, ishnan paradigm, which is both starts at a material or a physical level and goes much deeper at an internal level, Dan essentially becomes, let's keep giving. Give from an honest learning. So we talk about there's a purposeful giving. Mm -hmm. There is a deed, which, which means you are doing it from your honest labor. And there's a clarity in purpose as to why you're giving without expecting anything in back. So that's Dan. You start with physical, but eventually you're giving up yourself in the name of the guru. And those givings go from not just material things, but there is a martyrdom tradition that's called giving of the self at each level, literal head as well as the mental head beyond the means. And we see this in historical traditions that Sikhs celebrate all levels of giving. We mention those in Ardas, we mention those in the writings, but that's the Nam Danishnan. It has both elements and elevating yourself to the highest levels of giver like the Kohankar. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you kind of alluded to it, um, like these uh, examples manifested through or that existed throughout history um we have and we've already kind of talked about what different examples of nam danishnan or don specifically can look like um, and then maybe moving us into the uh, history portion of our report uh, i guess predominantly we understand currently the don as giving monetarily i'm wondering if this is and of course you've highlighted examples of different forms of dawn of different types types of giving. Um, I'm wondering what dawn has looked like throughout history. Uh, and the report starts with the guru period. So we can start with the guru period. Uh, yeah, Justine, I'm wondering if you wanted to start with a little bit of historical context. Yeah, so I think the, the major takeaway from the guru period is that a lot of the gurus like projects were short-term and long-term, and maybe they started out seeming to be short-term projects, but 
in the end, there is this institutionalization that happens over the Guru period that is about some kind of long-term goal or result. So like the example that we have is Lunger. So people say, okay, Lunger is about, you know, there's equality, everybody's sitting together. Like there's this kind of dissolving of caste boundaries when you have everybody eating on the floor together. But the institutionalization of that is about community building. And it is about actually like inculcating the values that you are, we talk about gestures, like literally gesturing. So you're acting out this equality through the act of having longer together. But maybe that also builds that principle and that value in a community so that you can create this kind of like larger organized and institutionalized, um, yeah, egalitarianism. And so one of the things that I think we maybe don't think about as much when we, when we think about Don is the establishment of these cities. So like we have Kartarpur and that's, that's like seen as, uh, an enactment of the idea that Guru Nanak started the Raj. So it's not like this is not just like heady stuff where we're giving a little bit of money in one place and a little bit of money somewhere else. It's like long-term planning that is required, which I know sounds more sort of boring and tedious maybe than we want it to. But those things are required to build up a fund, like a community of six that has these values that they share between them. Because when you build up that community of thinkers and activists and artists and you organize them and you have institutions that are furthering education and unifying them through language and, you know, centralizing power, you're building up the ability to expand those values into other communities. So something that we talked about in the report very briefly is this idea of like, um, good kiseva and had kiseva and this idea that like, you actually do have to serve the guru and the panth and the six in order for the panth to serve the larger community. And that's, I mean, I'll talk about it when we get to the survey as well, but like that was a sentiment that people had is like, some people think we're doing too much of one and too little of the other. And so what we see in the guru period is that Don also encompasses that like strategy and that planning that, that maybe isn't as tangible. Like it, it encompasses empowering the bunts so that you can do those larger projects and those, you know, more long-term projects. So I think that's something that we, we don't think about that much. And, and those communities are kind of, um, they're examples that we can use now when we kind of tell ourselves that like things are this way and they've always been this way and they always have to be this way. Um, if we can kind of do that work of the long-term planning and strategy and understanding the needs of our Bunthic community and the larger communities that we're a part of, then, you know, I think that's, that's the vastness of Don that we can actually like implement and, and, you know, act out in the world um, rather than just like, you know, our small givings. If we can expand the vastness of how we understand Don, then we can also start to understand how to emulate that that planning in the Guru period that I think that we might have, maybe we've kind of lost a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I think maybe this is a, this is a section where you're referring to achievable utopias. And it, I guess, yeah, like what I'm reflecting on is maybe uh, the idea of these utopias as like physical spaces. And then a little bit of what you just shared around these, um, maybe not a physical space, but more like leading through ideologies or like inhabiting the Don. Um, or emulating the Don, I'm wondering 
um, what, yeah, maybe if you want to elaborate a little bit more on what a community built on the principles of Nam Danishnan looks like and what, yeah, what achievable utopias could, or yeah, maybe things to keep in mind when thinking about achievable utopias. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in the case of Kartharpur Saib, like we know that the principles of Ikongar are like, that's what this, this achievable utopia is founded upon. So that means that, um, we're eliminating like the priestly class. We're dissolving caste divisions. We are actively like working towards an egalitarian society. And there's like something deeply revolutionary in that. Um, and so we see that and we see that with like multiple cities that are founded. We see that with Anandpur Sahib with Guru Gobind Singh and, and in his, uh, something we talked about in the report is is that he actually bestows ownership of that land onto the six, onto the community. And there is this idea that like we have collective ownership and collective responsibility. And that um, that doesn't mean that everybody's giving the exact same amount. It's that everybody's trying to do what they can, what their capacity is, what's in their capacity, whether that's monetary or not, to to build these communities. So that didn't always look like people being able to give money. It also looked like people donating labor, you know? Um, and so that's not, I mean, none of that is like foreign or far away from how we can be responding in our current situations. I think like we have these ideas of mutual aid and we have ideas of how to organize, but maybe we're not necessarily enacting them all the way. Um, and, you know, there, there might be an argument that like, we have to have a literal space, like a literal, um, city or a literal nation state where we can enact those things. But if you look at, you know, the later historical period where we have like the British in India doing their thing, we have all these kind of, um, attacks on our institutions and our kind of like sense of self in a way you have a response by people who are outside of those positions of power who are able to kind of address the needs that aren't being met by the state or to address the things that the state is deliberately doing to break down communities or to disempower people or to immiserate people further. So we, we have examples of how to do that even within the, the sort of nation states that we exist in now. And we've done it and we, I think, you know, we can continue to do it. So, so this idea that there has to be a space is not necessarily true, but I think something that I take a lot from the Guru period is how much, um, how much like imagination has to go into that. Mm -hmm. And I know that seems like a fluffy sort of, you know, word to use, but it's actually, if we don't imagine anything outside of what we can currently see, then we're not going to be able to build those kinds of communities that we saw in the Guru period. There, it takes a really large amount of kind of imagination and also like deep logistical work to get to that point. Um, so, yeah, so I understand the, the notion of physical space being necessary, but I would disagree with it. I think that we've seen um, how we work within the spaces that we have when we can't when we, when we don't have that kind of like physical community all the time. Um, yeah. I don't know if Herner saying, do you want to add anything? Or disagree? Uh, sure. I mean, the, the conversation uh, started out with the utopias and I was smirking a bit because there we go again, trying to figure out 
a Western monarch. Sir Thomas More was riding a fictional island in 1516, and Gurnanak had created a reality in Kartarpur by then. That's the difference. Yeah. Just think about that. You know, so when we think of and Sir Thomas More is my hero. Don't misunderstand me. I, I, I understand what he was doing with the reform with the Catholic Church and the Church of England and all that stuff. But the point is, the gurus actually had made that a reality when the leading thinkers in the West at the time are actually imagining that. And that's the difference. So what I want to say is, look, I, let's apply this in the post-guru period because this is where we really see what Justine was saying fully into action, you know? But... Khalsa Raj, as Banda Singh Bahadur delivered, was not imagined in South Asia. It happened with, as we say in Punjabi, with the thapada of Guru Gobind Singh. Mm -hmm. That's the anecdote. What is behind that anecdote is all the military campaigns, all the physical and strategic plannings, all the monetary, administrative, and governance systems. All of those things come into play. This is how it happened. Then we have a second round of those uh, uh, in the missile period. It was not imagined for 700 years, guys, 700 years that an indigenous person can capture Lahore. Mm. It was not imagined, but it became a reality in 1765 when six did it. It took everything we had. Our Namda Nishnan is what I call it. This is what Jassa Singh Aluwaliyas of the world were like, right? And then if you look at the third element of that in Ranjit Singh period, there was no native empire which the natives were able to establish which the British weren't able to capture. But it was not just imagined, it was become a lived reality. So these, and how did he, and his lived reality, because now he is part of the, he is the empire actually, Ranjit Singh. Uh, so he created more than military campaigns then, you know, a lot of the fun, all the major Gurdwaras we know today, including the ones left in Pakistan on side of the Punjab, guess what? They were reconstructed by him. The whole education system of Punjab spent more money per capita than the British Empire did. And this is how everyone got educated in Punjab. So the point being, and we cite all these things in the report, that uh, when Jocelyn said uh, she's wondering or she's imagining what uh, uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh would be saying to Baba Banda Singh Bahadur, I think they would be pretty much aligned on the why. Because they actually both were for the record, initiated six as well. Yes, they had imperfections. That's not what we are discussing today. And in that, their why was very much aligned. The what and how has to do with the eras you live in, the community and the realities you live in, the empires you live in, the resources you live in, and the governance systems you live in. And that's exactly what they did with the collective efforts of the community, which first created strong institutions. That's what Gurki Seva means. Gurki Seva actually, because Guru also includes Guru Khalsa Pant, which means the community. And Harki Seva is what we now call Sarvadda Pala includes that. Because if your own institutions are not strong, you will never be able to help, uh, serve Sarvat in a strategic way, in a long-term way, in a teach a man a fish, you know, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day and teach him how to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. We worked on the second part more. We never stopped the first but we were more on the second. So that's how it happened in the post-Guru period. And they were very much things which were beyond imaginations of the people and the empires, and they actually disrupted them and created the new systems. Yeah, I think, I think that's helpful contextualization. I think um, 
yeah, I guess it's always like perfectly transitioning into, into my next thoughts. Um, because now we are introduced to, um, the colonial period, which I guess is like more proximate to us. So I feel like I understand it more. I feel like it applies to me more, uh, or has like direct close proximate influence on my, on my life. So with this like move to the diasporic or sorry, the colonial period, we're also introduced to the diasporic context. Um, but before we move into like diasporas, I'm wondering about the role of institutionalization um, and what shifts came about because of institutionalization that happened in the colonial period and how uh, that institutionalization has been transported, if it has been, to the diaspora. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's a great question because now we are coming into the kind of the terms we're starting to use, right? Well... You know, we have, uh, when you have a confrontation with the new realities, you know, in the post Maharaja Ranjit Singh period, systems are changing. And they are looking into how the organized way of the larger hegemonic culture does these things. So Sikhs are addressing that as well. They are forming their communities. You know, uh, some are more focused just on education. Some are more focused on working with the British Empire some are more focused on fighting the British Empire. Some are more focused on creating a renaissance through literature. Some are more focused on, let's send people to, uh, uh, to the West, to the Harvard even, to learn how to have the best educational systems within Punjab. So the shift is happening because they're getting more project focused is what we might call it today. Earlier, uh, so the one thing which happens like this is that the shift is there is more project focus there is understanding of alliances. Many a time alliances don't make sense, but they do make sense. But I want to bring it back to the Dan part. So what happens with the Dan is a similar thing. You know, then there's a codification of that. You know, actually the codification started in Guru period. And the most contemporary account we have is Painandalal Goya. And Painandalal Goya uses these three words, Nam, Dan, Ishnan again. That the, the giving has to, comes from there. And then he gives a word which we are used to today. He's the first guy we are able to locate in the history and the codification of the six. And he uses the word daswant in his uh, writings. So daswant then becomes this idea of, you know, the tenth as we are used to in the religious systems. But the principle in Guru Granth Sahib is that you give some. And those who are committed then, you know, those who are saying we are part of the Panth and are also initiated and rest who are aspiring to become initiated, they said, Let's put the money to actually change the things. And that's where the Daswand idea came. So Daswand then became a way of uh, articulating a budget, if I may call it that, you know, because then you have a particular sources of revenue and those revenues are being used for particular projects or campaigns or revolutions. So that's what you see happening between sort of 18, post-1849 to 1920s. And elements of those are forward because after that you see um, these when the British fully took over then they introduced these ideas of what we now call non-profits now you know in India they were called and they're still called I mean the registration act of 1860 is still relevant in India which mm -hmm. is about having a society or having a charity or having a private trust so those kind of vocabularies get introduced under the British period uh, sometimes they are also used to intermingle with the Sikh affairs, as we see with some of the larger nonprofits Sikhs have. But essentially, the current formation starting to take shape because the legal systems are now in place and indigenous systems are being replaced. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah, you kind of already covered it, but I'm, um, I guess to delve further into the Reddit section, I guess like some things I'm picking up on is like it's project based. We're thinking about budgets. And of course, like perhaps these are like simplified terms of understanding what's happening in the colonial period. Um, maybe this like privatization, maybe I'll use like individualization, whatever, yeah, whatever we want to, however we want to understand these shifts. And it also is sounding like there's a shift yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering when that shift occurs from, or I guess you covered it already, but from Don to Das Wand. And then I'm also reflecting, um, I guess, on the codification of this of this shift. So in the right section, uh, it reads, if one has taken Amrit and is not giving Das Wand to the Guru, then one is breaking their commitment to the Guru and is akin to stealing from the Guru. So I'm wondering if you want to say, I guess my question is uh, around the codification of Das Wand. Look, I'll, I'll make it very relevant. You know, when I was learning to delve into the Sikh nonprofit world in, in the mid-90s, I remember Time Magazine had an article with a cover story called Mormon Incorporated. You know, everyone was fascinated. You know, who are these guys while the world is making fun of them? Uh, and one of the things when when I looked into us and a few of us who used to talk about these, we said, you know what? Almost 60% of them gave uh, the swant in Sikh vocabulary, their tithing, right? So, well, guess what? Sikhs were doing this in guru period. So when what happens is when you have an organization of a community into a panth, how, how do you think the langars are being run? How do you think the cities are being built? How do you think campaigns against the Mughals are being fought? You need horses too, right? And that's why Guru Hargobind Pasha says, oh, we don't need romales anymore. I'm adding that up. But he did say very clearly, we need kodes and shastars, which means we need because this is, you know, the horses and weapons were the need of the time. So codification definitely happened. We have it in writing, in the writings of Painandalal Goya. Mm -hmm. And then we see in several Rahatnamas, which are exploring this, because Rahatnamas are personal explorations as to how they understand the code. So in those codes, the line you read comes from there. And we see Pai Khan Singh Nabha even 100 years ago writing this. So the swan became codified in the Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj period with the Khalsa's advent. And then explorations of those Daswand, I don't want to mislead because I think it sounded like we were only project focused. No, I also said that we were revolution and revolt focused as well. There was no monolith. The idea was, like Jocelyn said, she's left-leaning. There are people who are right-leaning. Uh, there are people who are centered. They're all, we have every shape of people even today. Guess what? 100 years ago, we had them too. Some fought the British, some worked with the British, some said we'll work with the British to fight with them internally. So all, and some said neither, we're gonna be independent. So all three got funded. Who funded them? They raised money at Gurdwaras just like today. They raised money through their networks. They, even if you have seen popular movies on Sardar Udham, you'll see what the Gurdwara was doing in Punjab to inspire him to be a giver of a different kind. And what a Gurdwara in South Hall was doing, sorry mm -hmm. at the time it was Shepherd's Bush, um, to inspire the monetary collection so he can buy what he needs to, to take care of what he needs to. So what I'm trying to say is the codification happened during Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj, and that codification was accepted by the large masses of the Sikhs, regardless of what kind of uh, project they were working on, what we call project now, and they included all sorts of things. They were not just comfortable things, if I may call it. They were not just instant gratification kind of things or relief things. They included uh, fighting the state things as well. 
I think, yeah, I think this uh, move away from monolithization is, or monolithicizing, thinking there's only one thing happening in a specific period is helpful for, at least for me, um, to think more widely about what these periods look like and uh, what was happening. Uh, and then I guess this also shifts us into the dia the diasporic context. And I guess there's like various things that influence, influence us and our very diasporas. I know we're all sitting in North America, but in like very different uh, national contexts. So I, there's a point in the report where we explore this kind of complicated relationship between uh, the diaspora, or not we, where you, the two of you, other folks who are part of the report writing, explore this uh, relationship between the diaspora and the homeland, and then how that relates to philanthropy. I'm wondering just if you wanted to share a little, or speak a little bit more about that. Uh, what I'm particularly thinking about is the interrogation of the structures and the systems that make um, philanthropy and charity necessary or possible in the Western in the Western world. Um, yeah, what that relationship or what that idea looks like uh, in relationship to homeland. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, so I guess yeah, I'll, I guess I'll start with how we explored the kind of relationship between the diaspora and the homeland in the context of giving. Um, we used. Uh, we took heavily from uh, Vernon Dusenberry um, and his work on diasporic philanthropy. And, and there's a, a few things that I think are necessary to think about um, because, you know, this problem hasn't gone away. This kind of like maybe this gap between um, where we sit here and what is needed um, in the, in the homeland. So this idea of like diasporic philanthropy is really important. I'm, most of the money that is going into um, Punjab is coming from the UK, the US and Canada. Um, and we have to think about like what our motivations are for giving. And so one of the things we explored is like this concept of is it or honor or some kind of like, yeah, some kind of like vanity <laughs> sort of orientation of like, if I do this, um, then it will, it will affect my kind of like status in some way. And so we have like, the example of maybe like giving a gurdwara like a facelift or something, you know, like it's not necessarily a productive uh, project, but it it gets people kind of what they're after, maybe what whatever motivates them to give. Um, there's that, and then there's also just like what I've kind of alluded to, which is the gap between um, just like day to day understandings and experiences of what is needed. And so it's really hard if you are sitting in one place and you don't have that much of a connection to the place that you're kind of looking at from where you are. If you don't have a sense of what's needed, then you have the risk of, of kind of donating based on whatever you think is needed. And so I think that's been, been something that we touched upon, um, in the report is like both the motivation and also just like the gap in understanding of what people are actually asking for. And we see that in the survey as well. We had respondents who were in the homeland saying, you know, we want projects that are long-term and philanthropic and they're, and about that kind of teach a man to fish, um, <laughs> saying that her in their, her in their mentioned earlier is it's like, there is this kind of, um, tendency, I think that we have as humans to want to do the thing that is like quicker or, or has kind of a quicker payoff. Um, and that maybe makes us look good in, in the process. And so that's like a big thing that we have to consider when we're, you know, when we're sitting in our diaspora context saying, okay, I want to send my money there, but, but what, 
what should I do? Where should I send it? Um, so that requires a little bit of, of introspection, a lot of introspection, um, before we kind of start putting things where they maybe like make us, it makes us feel good to put money in certain organizations. Um, and then there's also just the issue of like, if we think about the, not to get like too <laughs> general, but if we think about who, who leaves the homeland, like who has the privilege to leave, right? We have to think about caste. We have to think about class. We have to think about um, these things that make it easier for certain groups to leave the homeland and maybe make a lot of money that they're then going to send back. And so who's like, whose needs are not being addressed? Because if I'm, if I'm like a person who is from what we now call like the oppressed, uh, oppressor caste sort of group, and that's like my family history, and I've come here because of the privilege of my grandparents, and I'm looking to give money to maybe places that I like vaguely know, who am I more likely to know? Like we have to think about all these things and where money is needed, but it's not going. Um, and then also something that we saw in the in the survey responses in 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 like a substantial enough sort of amount that we noticed it is that like there is some skepticism too um towards like people who are kind of giving money without without much um much sort of sense of like purpose and direction um outside of maybe their own their own needs and that's not to say that that's true of all all people who give <laughs> from the diaspora into the homeland but it's something that we have to kind of be truthful about while we're thinking about these things um so that's one complicated thing. And then the other complication that you had asked about is this idea of like what structures and systems make philanthropy and charity and like nonprofits, you know, possible and necessary in, in the Western world. So like I said in the beginning, we have to acknowledge that like sick conceptions of giving and charity and philanthropy are that are rooted in this Gurmuth perspective and in our history and in our body, like they don't actually jive with Western notions of philanthropy. They're like fundamentally different from our original conceptions. And so like we have to understand that philanthropy in a Western context is a lot of times a thing that reinforces colonial divisions. So we say this in the report, like us versus them, have and have nots. Um, and then like the, the rich and the poor. So these are all things, again, that we have to acknowledge and not just acknowledge, like, it should inform our behavior when we're, when we're like trying to figure out how to give, because, you know, I'm thinking about like the news, the, I mean, maybe it's not that current anymore, but like the Freer and Sackler families or the Sackler family, um, not Freer, the Sackler family and the, the opioid crisis in the United States, you know? So there's this idea that like, if wealthy people um, maybe are making money in a way that is not honest labor, like we talked about in the beginning of the report, that like Don actually also is qualified by like how you're making that thing that you're giving. Like what is your labor honest? So if there's this dishonesty in labor or this aligning with things that are harmful, something that we see is that like wealthy um, families or wealthy institutions that maybe are involved in something that is not so kosher, um, then use philanthropy as like a PR move. So like the, this is another thing that we have to keep in mind. Again, it's not true of everyone, but like these are all questions that we have to ask. How are people making their money? It's not just, is Jeff Bezos donating? You know, it's like, how is Jeff Bezos making money? And is it like, is it rooted in 
what we call our sick paradigm. So is it rooted in this like egalitarianism? Is it rooted in fair treatment? Like these are things that um, are really important. And so I know that that's like, it feels funny to write a whole report on giving and then to be like, ah, (laughs) there's so many things complicated about it, but that's the reality. Right. And so if you can acknowledge that and also acknowledge like our material reality as it is right now is this way, this is how things have to happen because of the, of the gap in, in wealth. Like Mm -hmm. then you can understand also how to change those things. And and I know I said, imagine so many times, but also act on your imagination. But again, that requires all that internal work because we couldn't have those imagined and then realities of communities that are utopias on earth without that foundation and without the work that is necessary. Because it's not just that the guru is perfection and therefore we can have these imagined communities become a reality. It's that the community around the guru, like the devotees of the guru, the six of the guru have to also do that work to build that foundation and kind of agree on that goal and and then carry it out. So yeah, I think um, that's a very long-winded thing, but these are complications that we want people to really be thinking about. Um, And sort of the point is that if we want to give vastly and with purpose and with intention and thought, there is a lot of um, sort of a lot of this work is necessary to, to understand the systems in place and to understand how you can best um, sort of do your part. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know you said that, yeah, like you wrote a report on giving and then you shared that it's much more complicated than that. But I think that also helps us, maybe start in like actualizing what giving looks like, how we are, um, yeah, how we have the monetary funds or how we're getting the money that we are going to be giving. I think it helps us like interrogate those, those aspects as opposed to being like, this is giving, this is how you do it, go off and do it. Um, but like you have to engage with those like tough questions. And I guess I think like in your first part, you were speaking about, um, uh, like where we're giving and understanding like what the needs are um, and understanding, I guess, as something I come across in like not my nonprofit work within uh, with other communities uh, is around this like savior complex that we, we adopt when we are giving uh, maybe to people within our own communities, within communities in the homeland um, and how sometimes that feels like a natural instinct, being the savior, giving the money, um, and then actually like stepping back and being like, okay, how am I actually, uh, how am I earning this money? Uh, is that also done in a way that adheres to principles that I want that also uh, adhere to the way that I want to give? hope that made sense. Uh, but that's kind of what I'm picking up, the like where we're giving and how we're thinking about where we're giving and our own positionalities and our own positionalities in that and then um, where, how we're uh, attaining that wealth as well. Um, but to move a little bit to the survey, um, just to give everyone a little bit of context, we had around 726 respondents from 23 different countries um, responding to this survey. Among other questions, one of the ones that were asked uh, was around what most informs perspectives on the effectiveness of sick nonprofits. So people, around 60% of people said impact or outcomes 
are what is most important to them when they're trying to assess how effective a sick nonprofit is. Uh, people also said transparency and public relations or social media. And I found that last one like very interesting. Um, I suppose, yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing these measures or how people think, um, how people inform themselves on how effective a sick nonprofit is. Uh, and I'm wondering, given this, these like complicated relationships, Justine, that you just talk, talked about, how do, how did you kind of see in the survey, how individuals, um, how, inter how individuals are understanding their own giving through a sick lens? Yeah, I think, so I, I did um, allude a little bit in, to the sort of diaspora homeland relationship and how that was reflected in the survey and this idea of like serving the month versus serving um, like a larger community, I guess, um, or serving the all of creation. So that came up quite a bit in the longer responses of, of like what people are seeing that they would like to see change. Um, but I think the biggest thing that surprised us was also that, um, I guess maybe it didn't even surprise us, but, but like this idea that like PR is really important to how people evaluate an organization. And I think like, it's, it's really like, it, I mean, I understand it. It's like, if you're looking up an organization and you're thinking about donating, you might like go to their website. If the website like hasn't been updated or you can't see kind of any tangible evidence of, of the work that they've done, then you're less likely to donate. And, and so there becomes this, um, this maybe like leaning onto PR as a, as a larger element of how we evaluate an org, just because it's like faster and kind of easier and like a visual it's a visual thing for us. Um, so I don't think that was surprising. I think that given the, what we've seen, um, we have a tendency to, to donate more to shorter term things that have like a, have a quicker payoff because then we can see that what we've done is actually making some kind of tangible difference in real time. And sometimes we don't like to wait. Uh, so, but then that's paired with, the majority of respondents, which is like, I think it was 54% said that they were more likely to give to long-term philanthropic projects, which that was really surprising because we evaluated basically like the wealthiest orgs, which are mostly located in the US, Canada, the UK, um, and I think Australia and Malaysia, we had a couple from there, but like we looked at their financials and we looked at the work that they do. And so the Although we're saying, the majority of us are saying, yes, we want to donate more to philanthropy and to long-term projects. Most of the orgs that are getting our funds as a collective that we're donating our funds to are, they lean more heavily towards charity and short-term projects or like response or relief work. Um, and so that's just like, it, I think I'm wondering a lot about like why there's that disconnect. And and I think, you know, her and saying, and I talked a little bit about like, you know, sometimes when you're um, like thinking about how to give and maybe you don't have as much money, you want to like maybe spread your dollar a little bit more or um, or, yeah, try to figure out like the most effective way to donate. And so that becomes like maybe a thing that people consider. And then they say, OK, maybe it's better for me to donate to a charity rather than a long term project because I only have X amount of dollars. Um so that, I guess, yeah, that was surprising because we also asked, we gave them like a hypothetical and we said, assuming that our like budget 
for the like global sick nonprofit group is 300 million US dollars. Like how, what percentage of that money has to go to philanthropy in your opinion? And so most people said 50-50, 50% to philanthropy and 50% to charity. And then the next most common answer was that actually 60% of our money should go to philanthropy and 40% should go to charity. So there is this like, at least in principle, this understanding that we ought to be funding philanthropic, like philanthropic projects, long, long-term projects, um, more than we're funding shorter term charity projects, but it's just not, there's some kind of difference in our behavior and we don't, you know, we don't have the answer for why that is. It's just something that is really surprising. Um, yeah. Her they're saying, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I'm going to go back to, um, a guru period example, maybe to demonstrate that at an organizational level. You know, so uh, we we like to talk, and this is from PR angle a little bit, and it's covering that as well, uh, Paikanaya. But what we forget is that while there was one Paikanaya, which was facilitated by 100 Bachitra Singhs, and that was the project of Anandpur, that it allowed us to actually go to that levels of service providing. So if we come to today's, you know, in the, in the nonprofit world, SGPC has roughly, uh, I think we had 2019 numbers is what we used. And their budget is 162,000. And the largest relief budget in the world outside of the homeland is Khalsa AIDS. It's almost 5 million US dollars. So you have those budgets available to provide that kind of a work which they both organizations claim to be doing large amounts of that. SGPC does many other things. We can be critical of where they spend or not, but that's what they publish. Now, the question for us would be uh, the complications and the uh, disharmony, perhaps, which we are referring to. And $300 million is not an unfounded estimate we came up with, because if, if we look at all the data available to us, we were already able to account for more than $200 million between the three largest sick nonprofits in India, SGPC, DSGMC, and Chief Khalsa Dewan, as well as about 10 or so, uh, which the countries just lean mentioned, but in addition to that, uh, uh, Singapore as well, because it has some large old philanthropic uh, organizations of six. Look, uh, the questions for us are very, 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 very simple right now, if you ask me. The complication, it is at a personal level. Where do I give? How do I earn? Am I earning right? Those are personal questions. And and you know, those that's good. That's what cleansing is. <laughs> cleansing needs to happen at a personal level. At organizational level, we need to ask more critical questions. This is where, you know, in America, for example, you know, Network for Good and Charity Navigator and GuideStar actually help us answer some of those, which is legally, are we doing the right things? And I'm not gonna get into those, but those have to do with transparencies and those have to do with governance. But the angle which we need to bring from a sick angle is, are we punthically responsible? You know, and that's the question which we are not delving into. PR-wise, yes, but in our report writing, in our analysis, in our presentation to the sick world, we need to get into that. Am I punthically responsible? And what that means is, uh, can we go back to this Namdanishnan paradigm and say, well, I am focused more on charitable work and this is the long-term policy change I'm trying to do, or this is the reality change I'm trying to do. You know, So if we want to have the next Pahikanayas of the world, let's not keep invoking 
the seva panthis of the past which i know they still do good work or a lone ranger like uh, ravi singh who is trying to get medical attention in england as we speak uh, but it requires much more work that facilitation happened in anandpur and i think that facilitation in the non state model which is our current reality of the six we need to become more diligent at organizational levels so those who are running the organizations have to ask some serious questions about why we exist and why do we operate the way we operate and those who are funding them in more uh, larger donations also must be asking those questions to them that what policy change are you working toward what dent are you working toward which will be changing the realities of the communities you are trying to serve Thank you. I think um, we just before I forget, um, we will shortly be or we can now uh, move on to questions from the audience. I see that we have a couple. Um, but yeah, I would uh, prompt everyone to leave their questions in the chat box, including their name and their city. Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. What, what we just reflected on was kind of this individual giving and then moving on to more like organizational and institutional giving. Um, not to like push us actually. Yeah. I guess I won't shift us like back and forth. I'll try to, um, ask the questions that maybe pertain to what we had just been talking about. Um, yeah, we have a question around, uh, who currently constitutes the most powerful and influential segments, uh, of sick philanthropists in the North American context. So uh, the question is, what is to be done about the fact that much of the sick philanthropic class uh, is constituted by extremely wealthy people who may have come into their wealth by investing in various um, forms of, in this question askers, um, view, exploitation, or violence? Uh, they're wondering if the panelists could reflect on the uh on this in the context of the discussion around the model of Anandpur Sahib and other sick possibilities of utopia, which would prompt one to rethink these ideas of nonprofit and the philanthropic models maybe that we use today. Um, and like these nonprofit and philanthropic models constitute or consist of the wealthiest six who are giving and donating um, a small fraction of their wealth in exchange for an outsize voice and community and affairs discourse. So I guess like how I'm understanding this question is both reflecting on who is doing the giving and I guess the donating in our current context, which is oftentimes um, very wealthy people who uh, are, uh, they are, they are uh, receiving this wealth or attaining this wealth uh, in various, maybe not always uh, helpful ways, maybe exploitative ways. So that contract, like that current day, uh, that current day reality with um, these ideas we were talking about around Anandpur Sahib and Utopia. Um, so can the panelists maybe reflect on this in the context of models of working towards wealth distribution, which I know in the report there are mentions of. So thinking about mutual aid networks and labor organizing. So I guess, yeah, I'm thinking about like the the push and pull or like the, yeah, the dynamics between those two and then um, reflecting on wealth distribution models. Are they saying just link or? I, I got lost in the questions, but I'll go with the spirit of it because it was uh, lots of statements were mentioned, but look, I'll, I'll pull out two things. 
One is uh, we we cannot answer this from the guru period because guru is all knowing and guru knew where the funding was coming from. Uh, we what we do know from a guru period is the only no nos were a state or an agent of the state could not give any gift to influence uh, what the Sikh world was doing in the guru period. That we know very clearly, nothing more than that we know. And we cite those in the report. For example, Akbar, what he tried to do or during Guru Nanak Sahib period and things like that nature. And Guru Tegh Bahadur period, Guru Arjan period, all those things. Now in the post-guru period, let me ask certain questions. You know, sometimes I think, again, that the personal cleansing reflection we already have addressed. Uh, but uh, I think if you are going to apply certain lenses, most of you will probably consider the expansionism of Ranjit Singh to be exploitative. That's how he gained the money. I don't think that's where we were going with this report. What we are saying is there are some definite no-nos. We don't know. There are certain things which do create disharmony from the Nam Danishnan doctrine. And where it is creating the disharmony from earnest labor angle, that's the angle we brought in, then the individual and that organization needs to, uh, that sorry, that philanthropists need to do more thinking. That's the first point. Second is the organization which receives it, what do they do? Well, there have been seldom cases of where this has happened, where uh, uh, the gifts have been refused, let's call it that. And if the gifts have been refused, uh, then that's how, that's the governance of the organization which matters. They need to understand. So this is not about value judgments only. This is about knowing what is our operating principle, what is our culture, and how we are getting into it, and not holding fingers to only the extreme rich. And I want to mention that while I understand that argument. Uh, because who do you think funded even Kartarpur, the Karodi Mal? I mean, I don't know what you know about him. That's the whole land was given, right? Uh, the person who gave the space for Sahib Zada's, uh, Chote Sahib Zada's, uh, uh, where the, for the cremation. We don't know much about that individual, how he or she earned it. So what I'm saying is I'm saying a little bit of a forewarning. We absolutely must strive forward earnest living. And that's where the dance should be coming out of from a personal angle. Organizations must have a criteria uh, on how to deal with where it is pretty black and white about uh, how the money was uh, earned. Other than that, I think we need to relax it and perhaps look into more as to how do we plan for philanthropic world? How do we plan for the right aid work? How do we make sure uh, that these uh, details which Jocelyn had provided and, uh, and quite intricately, that it is not just the funding, but the funding which creates the jobs and the mechanisms, as long as they are not being used for the personal benefit, that's where the focus needs to go. Jocelyn, I'm wondering if there's anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, I think the only thing, so, you know, Again, left-leaning. So we had these conversations we were, when we were writing the report. And there is something that um, has been sticking with me, which is that like one of, the, one of the excerpts that we used was about sort of a lack of condemnation or a lack of like pointing fingers. And so I think that it's possible to hold that very much in your hands along with the understanding that like, like 
individual reflection is necessary and and actually is being like explicitly asked uh asked for by the guru in 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 this context like if you want to give in a sick paradigm you actually have to do all of this work especially if you are a wealthy person especially if you have these different sort of um yeah different platforms and powers um i also think though if we look at the Bandha Singh Bahadur period especially it's not you can actually also not condemn people and also actively fight for a more equitable society. So like if we can hold all three of those things in our hands, if we have enough room, then I think that's, that's the sort of thing that I would offer is that like individual reflection is necessary. And like me pointing a finger at someone saying like, you've made your money from, I don't know, like the military industrial complex or something like that me doing that doesn't do anything, you know, like I'm not the person who has to answer for that. And the person who has to do that reflecting that's on them. And so it's like, not about that in the situation. It's not about that in this report, but I think the understanding is that like, yes, things are not equal in our society. And like, yes, in an ideal world, we would have those like utopias and that's what we want to work towards. So it's not just like taking this money and continuing to work within the systems that we have, it's also doing that imagining and then that implementing to make an imagined community a reality. So yes, labor organizing is important. Yes, mutual aid is important. And I am very much on board with all of that. So, but I think there's a way to, to kind of look at the totality of our history and understand um, kind of the maneuvering that is necessary and the working together that's necessary, even if we don't agree with um, the the means through which somebody has earned. And, and even if we say like, maybe that means that through which somebody has earned is like violent. Like we have to understand that. We have in the Guru period, we have land donations from people who are wealthy and powerful and who are in charge of kingdoms. Like we have this happening in our history. So the question is, where do you draw the boundary of, okay, thank you for this donation, but you actually don't get to have, you know, control over what we do with this. Um, and so that's part of our recommendations as well is like, when we have an org that is taking money from wealthy donors, which is like kind of how all these nonprofits have to function, is there a clear statement of like, actually, we're going to decide what our goals are and our agenda is, and that's not up to our donors to decide. So like, th these are all things that I think it's even like uncomfortable for me to say, because I still have that tendency to be like, no, <laughs> but, um, that's something that I've definitely like thought a lot about in the report writing and, and in the research we've been doing. So I hope that helps. And, and this is, a, I mean, that's a great point. And, uh, and, and there are many things, Jocelyn, I'll be even more left of you, but sick world is uncomfortable talking about that. And we are not addressing that. I mentioned it once, you know, in the sick narrative, there are people who fight the state. And in today's environment, they are labeled as terrorists or they are outcasted, you know, they also, their survivors, their kin survivors, post 84, they have to figure out their ways of raising monies, you know, which is also an uncomfortable topic, uh, which we must delve into. Uh, but the, where you ended, Jocelyn, this is where the nonprofit heads come into play. This is why you need an independent board in the nonprofit, which is not a funding 
and the funders have to be separated from that. And that's the kind of stuff Sikh Institute has gone through, other organizations are also going through. I mean, I use the, I'll use a North American example because Justine used several earlier. It's like, I remember I served for a year or two on the advisory board at Smithsonian, a religious advisory board. And one of the conversations we had there was, you know, these Koch brothers were pumping money even in Smithsonian. So they took the money and I want to make that point. And they said, thank you for your donation. And they actually used their donation and put it in a natural history museum. Just think about that for a second, which talks about evolution, which they hate, you know, because they are all about uh, naturalism. So the point about governance has to be solid. Uh, that's one of the ways uh, uh, organizations, because that's where the question was, can be very, very effective. And they can tread this fine line between not being judgmental, but staying true to their mission and true to their governance, true to not just the legal realities, but also the ethical realities. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's helpful as someone who is also, I guess, yeah, is it's important to engage in this conversation and also it is maybe a little bit uncomfortable as well. So I, I appreciate the conversation. Um, I know we literally have a minute left. There are a couple other questions. Maybe um, we can, extend, if folks are able to stay on, we could stay on for another like 10 to 15 minutes. Um, is that okay? I'll just check in. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, awesome. Um, so we had a question around Nam Japana, Van Shakana, Kirtkarna, which I uh, did not get to touch on in the uh, in our conversation, but I know it comes up in the report. I'm wonder wondering, Harinder uh, Singh, just inquire if you want to um, touch on this. The question is just, is Nam Japana, Van Shakana, Kirtkarna um, from anywhere in history or Shabad? And then perhaps relating it to. Uh, Quick answer is that it was a 20th century adaptation attributed to Pai Veer Singh because people were not understanding Nam Danishnan, which he also explains very well. You have to realize the early 20th century environment, everything was revolution, right? So you needed more active verbs and a more contemporary way to say it. And that's where it came from. Nam Japo, Vanchako Kirtkaro, because it was agitation, right? That kind of a thing going on. Uh, but it is very much founded from Nam Danishnan. We went back to that phrase because that's located in the original uh, vocabulary of Guru Granth Sahib, and that's where uh, we, we focus more and more on that. Mm. And then the second question is around Seva versus Don. Um, I guess thinking about what what is the difference between Seva and Don, and then should this person I may be is asking a, a very overt question, should I still be donating my money in addition to my time? So maybe, yeah, this, yeah, difference between money and time. Um, so in this report, we focused mostly on monetary giving, but we also looked at the different ways to give. And that's why we included, like in the Erdas, we talk about like the different ways to give, like literally give your life, which um, is a thing that we we come back to. There's a reason that we like remember that through the Erdas. Um, but I think that, I mean, the difference between Seva and Dan is that I would say Seva is like a form of Dan, like a form of giving. And something that we talked about in the Guru period is that like if people could not give monetarily, they were giving through some other means. And that doesn't mean you have to choose one or the other. So you can do both. <laughs> so you can give your this one and then you can also, yeah, do your Seva and, and donate your time and your, your labor. Um, I don't think there's any reason to have to choose one or the other. Yeah. And the other way to look at that, which we did in the report, that when we invoke the phrase Harki Seva and Gurki Seva, 
because seva in its common understanding is physical, but in Guru Granth Sahib, it is also, including on those two phrases, it's also mental or intellectual or spiritual or emotional, which means non-tangible stuff. So absolutely, this is all inclusive. The focus was on the physical but uh, or the monetary, but it includes um, man, man, 95% of the seva in Guru Granth Sahib invoked is man, mandi seva which is either intellectual, spiritual, or emotional, all of those things combined. Yeah, I think we also have a couple of questions around, maybe, yeah, more explicitly, like where, where are the needs? Where should we be donating? Um, so I guess keeping that in mind, answering that to the best of our abilities. And then there's also a question around, um, so this person is asking, they are never, they have an income, they're wanting to donate 10% and they're not always sure if they um, are stable enough to be able to donate that 10%, which I think is, it's like, oh, do I have enough money to be able to be giving some of my money away and kind of that like hoarding onto our wealth that we were talking about. So keeping that in mind, um, how, what is, I guess, maybe you could speak from a personal experience. Uh, the question is, how do I get into the mindset of giving gener generously with intention and with an open heart? Mm -hmm. So both where to donate and how to do it intentionally. And you, yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, I can tell you that uh, until uh, I had my first job, uh, I didn't have a monetary donation. I basically had time and that's what I was donating. Uh, when you're a immigrant who can't even figure out how to have enough clothes to wear to high school and be made fun of, you don't have money, you know, so you have other things. So you give volunteer time. So I volunteered at Gurdwara. I volunteered at Ozanam Home for Boys. That's my personal journey, sort of. And then when I started having a paycheck, you know, and I, by then I had also become, um, not just a self-identified Sikh, but also uh, I take a number, which means, you know, I'm saying I'm committed to the Panth. That's what that really means. So then I said, okay, then protocol matters. That's compliance. So at minimum, I need to be giving 10%. It's a, again, a self-enforcement, right? We don't have a, a Kaal Takht or a state mechanism for the Sikhs enforcing that right now. But where you do, you give taxes. Just remember that. So don't think it's outlying. That's what governments do because they know how much you make and they say, well, portion of this is needed based on whatever the politics of the place is that you're gonna give back. So I started doing that. And I can tell you that in the last 10 years, uh, uh, I don't wanna be in compliance. You know, I'm, I've been figuring out how do I, how can I get to a place where I live in 10% and give 90%. And it's a, uh, I, it's, uh, you know, in the changing priorities at family and organizations I support, uh, <laughs> on paper and off the record, you know, it becomes a challenge, but that's what I struggle with. I struggle with, you know, I don't want to be just in compliance. I want to be vast. I want to be expanded. So you give what you have is where you start in my case. I believe that's what the idea in Guru Granth Sahib is. Kitch is some. Kitch is whatever you define kitch is, right? And you do it yourself. Uh, you don't do it through someone else. And then, you know, as you grow your relationship, your commitments, you start going beyond compliances. And that's uh, my journey. I, that's what I've understood from uh, not just Guru Granth Sahib, but also the codification in, in its spirit. Justine Kaur, anything um, you'd like to add? 
I think I would just say that, I don't know, like when you're a kid and you do pennies for patients, I don't know if this is a thing everywhere, but like when you're a kid and you collect pennies for, for, um, like a cause basically, like you go around your house and you scrounge and you like, and I guess this isn't that relevant because people don't use like coins anymore, but, but this was like a thing that we did in elementary school with different organizations. And it was always like every penny counts. And so I think my whole thing is that like, if you're in a place where you can only, I don't even want to say only where what you can donate is your time, then you do that. If what you can donate is your labor, then you do that. If what you can donate is $5, then you do that. Like, I don't think, I think we have a tendency to say like, well, if I can only donate this much, then it's not even worth doing. But if like enough people only donate this much, then it adds up. And so I think that's like a thing that we do in our brains and it paralyzes us. And as for like getting to a point where you can become vast in your giving, that's the part that is the work that we have to do at like an individual level. That's the part that requires that relationship between Namdan and Ishnan. Like that's the chiseling. <laughs> that's like what happens to us over time and with great effort. And so it's not this easy switch that we turn on and then we're like, I'm going to give vastly like a conquer. It doesn't work that way because we might even give the money and then second guess it and be like, oh my God, could I even, can I even afford to do that? So I understand the kind of like want to be in that place and the desire to become that way as quickly as possible. But it is very much a like, um, it feels cheesy to say like, it is very much like a journey within your own self. And it's very much a journey within, through that like relationship with Ikongar, with the vast giver. And that's, it's through that journey and through that relationship that you begin to be able to like emulate that. Um, and I'm saying this as if I understand what that means, but you know, I don't. So, so yeah, I think you have two people who've like written this report and 20 pages on Bonnie and all the things that it says about what we need to do. And both of us are like, yeah, we're not there yet. So that should tell you what you need to know about that. Just keep chiseling, I think. Awesome. Thank you. I guess as we wrap our conversation up for today, I'm wondering, and maybe you've already answered this question, I'm wondering if there is something that we would like to leave the audience with, something that um, you want, that you think is a key takeaway from the report. Karin Lursing, maybe we can start with you. You know, uh, I want to bring it back to perhaps one line of Gurbani um, on Don. And Yes, things are complicated, and yes, there is a lot of effort, but at the end of the day, it's Gur Prasad, guys. You know, the line is, Nanak Nadri Bahare, Rachahan Dan Nanai. That uh, those who are outside the circle of grace, which means those who are not feeling the grace, Nadar, they will not be drenched in neither the understanding of giving nor the understanding, dan, na, na, na is nam here, and neither uh, giving nor uh, nam, uh, which is identifying. So it really is, we all this conversation, writing is to raise the level of awareness and those who choose to, to work on their personal transformations and the networks they operate in, including organizations to raise their levels and we actually transform them so uh, we can actually gracefully uh, become better givers and uh, experience now. 
Thank you. Jocelyn Gore, anything you'd like to add? I guess the only thing that I will add is um, that I hope people, we have a checklist in the report <laughs> for people to like, to really like break down how people can evaluate um, orgs that they're looking at donating to and also how orgs can self-evaluate. And so I'd really like take a look at those recommendations. Um, and then I think like an, on an individual level, I would say like, look at the kind of imagination and vision of the guru period and the, the, the way that that came to be and look at the imagination and vision of the Khalsa period, Khalsa Raj period, and look at how that came to be and use that as inspiration as you like do this work that is not easy and that is going to take time to do that kind of imagining and work towards making it a reality. Um, and then I would say, like, look at Ranjit Singh, who, despite, you know, his flaws, understood the importance of empowerment that we see in the Guru period and the Khalsa Raj period and understood the importance of even, you know, the we sometimes we like to say the arts don't matter. I don't know why we're like cutting humanity programs in the United States left and right. But, you know, these things matter and and being a patron of those things matters and um, empowering people through education and building that kind of community where you're watching your nom, your connection with nom inspire other people and you're watching it kind of ripple out. That like creates the possibility for those imagined communities to become a reality. And we've seen it happen. So who's to say that it can't happen again? Um, that's all I'll say. A great- It, it a great will happen again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a great message to leave us off with. Um, I'll just close this out for today. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to Harinder Singh, to Justine Gore, to Art Sangat. You guys, everyone was um, so engaged. It was lovely to see the questions pouring in, the comments. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in and for spending this Saturday morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you're located with us. Um, just before we head out, please tune in for our next live webinar on February 12th titled Love, Devotion, and I, where we'll be discussing what is devotion? Is it just love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for the object of our love? Can there be love without scorekeeping? How can we come to better understand love and devotion within Gurbani, among other questions? So join us for a raw and awe-inspiring conversation with Dr. Jaswant Singh and Ini Kaur as they share their wonderings about love and devotion in this live webinar. And lastly, don't forget to tune into The Sikcast, a podcast produced by Sikri, where we explore the various issues and events affecting Sikhs worldwide. Just as a reminder, as always, a recording of today's webinar will be available within 24 hours. Thank you for joining in. Today's webinar will be ending now. Vaigurjika Khalsa, Vaigurjiki You are listening to Sikcast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.